Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Here comes part two of my interview series with Josh Scott. Let's get right into it. And here's part of the problem, too. I think Paul's wrestling with mystery. Historically, we know Jesus died because he announced the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Rome. Rome executed Jesus for treason. But as people began, as the first people who knew and followed Jesus and then these this growing communities, they're wrestling with, okay, yes, but what does it mean? Like the cross for them, what is, it has to mean something. So how do we understand what happened with Jesus at the cross? I think Paul gives different metaphors for that because one, they're metaphors. And two, he's trying to explain something that is ultimately mysterious. And so when you want to explain something mysterious, when you want to explain something that can't be captured in words, it can't be put in a test tube and studied in a lab, the, the only place we can go, I think it was Thomas Aquinas who said, if we're going to talk about God, we're going to have to talk about God by analogy. So we really can never say God is. We can say God is like. We can say God is like a parent. God is like our rock. God, but God isn't a rock. <laughs> right. right? So I think Paul's doing that. He's trying to sort out what is this Jesus experience and what does it mean. And every time he's having to process new data and new problems, and new questions, and new pushback, and he's having people come in from other places who are Jesus people, but they have a very different perspective than he does. And, and so, no, is he making it up, like in a nefarious way? No, of course not. Is he creatively responding to what's going on around him, and trying to articulate his understanding of faith, and who this Jesus is, and what it means? Absolutely. And he's doing it in real time, just like we are. I mean, when we are dealing with the, the problems and the issues and the pressing questions of our world, it's not like we just get to, I'm going to go sequester myself for two years and study this, and then I'm going to come out, and I'm going to have a really clear, as a pastor, I'm responding to things and questions in real time as the world happens around us in real time. So that's what I mean. I think Paul is doing the best he can to articulate in whatever metaphor, whatever language best conveys the need of the moment. I always tried to never say things I didn't believe. Now, as I said, I did try to say things that I believed in ways that would maybe land softer at times. Look, I've always had this, this conviction that probably everything I'm thinking I shouldn't say out loud. Sometimes because I don't even know what I think about it. There have been times when people have asked me questions and I'll just say, you know, I don't think I have an opinion on that yet. So I don't think I should speak to it. This has not been an overnight journey for me. And it's a journey I'm still on. It's a journey I'm still on. I've had more excitement around some, some discoveries from the Jesus story and some interpretations that I'm learning over the last two years than I have had maybe my whole life. So this is an ongoing process. I just didn't want to go out there and say, here's everything. Now, at one point, I did sit down with my board and said, this is everything I think right now that might be pertinent to you. Because I knew our church needed to move in the direction of being publicly affirming. I needed them to know that I do not think God killed Jesus to make us acceptable. That Jesus' death matters and it's important, but it's not for God. God didn't need it. 
and just some of those sort of things. And I just laid that all out in a meeting and said, if this is not the journey this community needs to go on, I'll resign. You can find somebody else and I'll do something else because this is the journey I have to go on. To their credit, they said, no, this is our journey together. About a year later, almost all of those leaders were gone. They left. <laughs> they left. Before we could ever make a public statement about being affirming, we had scheduled and we're hosting Brian McLaren to come speak for a weekend. And immediately when we announced that, small town, people started looking him up. Then the questions were like, so does this church affirm LGBTQ community as well? Yeah. It sort of just happened. We announced this and people start asking, well, does this church believe this now? Does this church believe it? And so that, that whole thing starts. And what I didn't know, and I'll never forget, I was sitting on a couch in my office and I was on the phone with Brian and I, we were talking about this journey we were in the middle of. And he said, you know, the, the hard part is going to be the people who love you and agree with you, but who leave anyway because of social pressure. And I said, I know these people. I've been with them for more than a decade. Brian, this is not going to happen. I know them. I know them. And then it wasn't very long and I was going, oh, Brian was right. Social pressure is real because people, it's a small community and people still want to be able to go to Thanksgiving at their grandma's and it not be weird and not be asked questions about their heretical church the entire time. And that was pro the, honestly the, the mo probably the most painful. It wasn't the people who disagreed. It was the people who agreed and didn't have the courage or willingness to see it through. Man, I can empathize. I think we're at this point in our conversation where I would like to unleash some of your theology. <laughs> On the audience, I would love for them to kind of get some of the color that's coming okay. with your process and your journey. I just want to give some context. When I met Josh, I met him because of Stan Mitchell, because he took over. Well, maybe we should share that part and then get into this. Okay. So at some point, Stan asked you to come pastor Grace Point, or how did you end up taking over Grace Point? What was the decision-making process on that? So I first became familiar with Grace Point in 2014, before Grace Point was affirming publicly there was no you know hadn't made the statement yet and the way we connected with them is brian mclaren who for so many of us has been a dear guide in this process grace point was hosting him it, i was sort of a mclaren groupie if he was anywhere nearby i would want to go at the time our church was reading through one of his books i just sent an email to somebody at grace point and said hey could i bring some of my people to the sunday night event and they were Sure, come on. And so at that event, I met Stan for the first time. Struck up a friendship with him and some other staff who were at Grace Point uh, became dear friends. We'd been familiar with each other. The fall of 2018, Stan reached out and said, hey, uh, I am going to be transitioning out as lead pastor. Um, I'd, like f I'd like for you to consider applying. And I did. It really is a wonder they ever wanted to talk to me. So we had our first meeting, then they followed up for another meeting. And at the time, things in the church in Morgantown were rough. We were struggling financially. It was just a rough time. And I felt like I can't leave them in this. So I withdrew from candidacy. And then they came back and said, Would, you know, can we talk again? And we talked again. And they offered me the job and I turned it down. Over the course of that fall and winter, we made lots of hard decisions that at the time got us in, on better footing. I'll never forget, it was in February. We were laying down to go to sleep and I just said to my wife, I, I wonder what's going on at Grace Point. Like, I feel like we've done the hard work over the last four or five months that I, I, I wish that now we were having that conversation. And so I just sent a text to Stan. I was already scheduled to speak there later in March. And I sent a text to Stan and said, hey, I'm thinking about Grace Point. What's going on? And he's, he said, well, that's interesting. They set up the interview. I told my wife, Carla, we went in. I said, I bet they did this just to tell us that ship has sailed. <laughs> like, I was fully expecting to come in and be told 
you missed your chance. And then the first person in the room said, we are so glad to see you. And I was like, oh, this might go well. From that meeting when I was, I felt like internally released from the other place where I'd been so long and realized that they, it was actually better for them for me to go. I'd led them through so much challenge and difficulty. You know, as leader, you have a certain amount of leadership credit. <laughs> I'd spent it all. And I just didn't feel like after 14 years, I was the person to get them over the hump. I'm so proud of the work I did there, but it was time for me to go. I just felt from the moment I sat down with the, the leadership council that night that I really want this to work out. And I'm, I'm just so grateful it did. It's been a, such a terrifically wonderful fit for, for me. I always tell people who preach at Grace Point when they come preach, I'm like, this is the best group of people to preach in front of. Because they just are just, they're with you and they're interested and they're engaged. I'm not just talking about in person. Our online community is unbelievably engaged and excited about the discussions we, we have and the conversations we create. Okay, Josh, you believe some dangerous things. Do I? I mean, I don't think that, but <laughs> people watching definitely would think that. I, def I mean, I thought that for the first, the beginning part of us getting to know each other, I'm like, is this person going to ruin my life? Am I going to like drive my whole team into the ground if I listen to this dude? Like... I didn't genuinely think that, but I was like, I probably need to be cautious and intentional about your question. <laughs> I know this can go in so many directions and I don't want to just like cut you open and pull your guts out and throw them everywhere, but would love for you to share some of the discoveries or conclusions or the things you've denounced or what have you. Um, people call you a heretic. People believe you don't know Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're deceiving people, right? I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I assume based on some of the things I've seen on social media oh, for sure. that there's this attitude or whatever. So what are some of the things that you've advocated for or pushed against that were game changers for Christians where they're like, oh, you're not a Christian anymore. This is a deal breaker for me. I don't know that I'm looking for just the most controversial and whatever, but just for some of the, f the, some context for what are we talking about? How, how far are we going with these things that you're describing? Could you give us some examples of the things that you've come across? I can't affirm the creeds. And somebody asked, well, which parts do you have a problem with? I was like, the beginning, the middle, and the end. <laughs> like, I think the whole thing ends up being problematic. I try to distinguish between what I'm interested in pastorally and then what I'm interested in in terms of scholarship. The conversation you and I had is I wouldn't just get up on a Sunday morning and unload all that. But, you know, the thing I find most exhilarating is trying to uncover the historical Jesus. What we end up with in the New Testament, the picture in the Gospels, the Gospels are not so much biography. This is what we're always told. The Gospels are biography. That's the genre. I don't think they are. If so, they got some of their facts messed up because they all don't agree. Even the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, disagree in, on things, right? They change words here and there that seem to be changed to make a point. I did do a series at Grace Point last Advent called Have Yourself a Merry Little Deconstructing Christmas, where we talked about what is going on in the Christmas story, and are these stories intended to be taken literally? And if so, why are they so different? And why do they have different details and different characters? Is this the right way for us to understand them? Or does actually the challenge and the meaning of the stories get lost in taking them literally? Let me just throw in real quick. I don't know where Josh is going with this, but if you love the Christmas story and you love the tradition, specifically being a Christian, you probably want to stop watching at this point. Spoiler alert, this guy will ruin Christmas for you. He ruined Christmas for me. And not just you, but you were the one who opened the door that ruined my Christmas. I experience the Christmas story so different now. And I'm like, there's no going back. Christmas isn't ruined for me. And actually what I said during the series, I actually think Christmas has already been ruined for people. What I'm trying to do is say for people who, if actually the way the Christmas stories have been framed and the way they've been understood and all the commercialization 
and all the stuff that's emerged around them has actually choked the joy out of Christmas for you. Like, I actually think grounding it in its own original context can bring joy back. Now, look, I still enjoy, I put on Christmas records, I drink eggnog, wear <laughs> ugly sweaters, I love manger scenes. I think the whole thing is terrific. But when I read the Christmas stories, first the thing I do is I try to separate them out. Because Matthew, which was written first, tells one story, and Luke tells another. Were you ever in a Christmas pageant growing up? Were you ever in a Christmas play? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, you know, it's just something that happens if you grow up in a youth group, right? Like, I was, I was, I was just, because when we're recording this, Easter is near us, and I just cannot tell you the number of times I have emerged from a paper mache tomb in a bathrobe in an interpretive movement on Easter morning. What you see at a Christmas play is there's the Annunciation to Mary, and then they go, they make the journey to Bethlehem. There's the announcement to the, you know, the baby's born, the shepherds, and then the Magi come in at the end. And what that is, is it is a mash up of two stories. Now, I'm not against Christmas pageants. I think they're a good time. But when it comes to like understanding the stories, that's a, not a great way to understand the stories because what it does is it loses the voice of each author. Each author is telling a story. The nativity story in Matthew and Luke individually serve as what some scholars call an overture. Like in a piece of music, it's all the notes and stuff you're going to hear throughout is going to be sounded in the beginning, and you're going to recognize them later. So Matthew, for example, begins with the angel coming to Joseph, right? Not Mary. Mary's sort of not in the, in the actually begins with a genealogy, which uh, John Shelby Spahn called the 17 most boring verses in the entire Bible. But they're actually brilliant, and they're setting up this narrative, right? But the whole point of Matthew's gospel is to say Jesus is not only Moses 2.0, but Israel 2.0, right? So you have Jesus born, King Herod unleashing the massacre, the slaughter of the innocents. So Jesus goes down into Egypt, and then he comes out of Egypt. And after he comes out of Egypt, he eventually crosses the sea when he's baptized by John. Then he's led out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, emulating the crossing of the uh, Jordan River and then going in, I mean, crossing of the Red Sea and going into the desert for 40 years. Like th Then Jesus sits on a mountain and gives uh, sort of a reinterpretation of the law. And like the whole thing, Matthew, this is not biography. The ancient world did not think about biography in the way we think about it. We have, we have imported our understanding of history on the ancient world. The ancient world's history telling was always creative. Every person of import in the ancient world who made an impact had a birth story. I mean, Jesus was not the only virgin-born person in the ancient world. I mean, you had, you had various gods. You had various people who were deified, who were, were said to have been born of a virgin. Like the god Mithra, who, whose birth was announced. And the shepherds were involved. Like, these gospel writers, they're, they're doing some storytelling here. And the storytelling is meant... To say, this is who we think Jesus is. And if we think the Gospels are biography, we'll be in them looking for biographical details about Jesus. But we don't get them. We get images of, and I, what I appreciate so much about the Gospel of John, which I, I went through a love-hate relationship, well, a hate-hate relationship with. I just didn't like it. I was done with it. And then um, through a couple of different authors doing beautiful treatments, brought me back into the Gospel of John. It's right up there. Mark is probably my favorite, but, but John would be a close second. What I love about the Gospel of John is at the end, the writer says, could have told you a lot of things, but I told you these things so that you would believe. Like, I appreciate that. Maybe say it at the beginning. <laughs> Don't save that for the big reveal at the end. The Gospels are not, here's literally stuff about Jesus. As much as the Gospels are, here's who Jesus is for us, told on the backdrop of the Jewish tradition that Jesus emerged from. Jesus was born, lived, and died a faithful Jewish person. And they tell his story through the lens of the Jewish scriptures.
So if you read a story about Jesus and you're thinking, gosh, that sounds a lot like a story about Moses, or you read a story about Jesus and you're thinking, I'm pretty sure Elijah did something pretty similar to that. And like, Yeah, you, yes, it's because what these authors want you to see is that the Jesus they have come to know and trust is in this line of l- prophetic leaders leading us into a new exodus in Matthew to the kingdom of God. Like understanding the Christmas stories as these as this challenge to the way the world works. Luke's probably my favorite Christmas story because it's the more familiar, it's the one Linus reads on the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Something that get lost, got lost, that I didn't know even existed probably growing up just because we never talked about it was the Mary's song, the Magnificat in Luke, where she's doing this whole thing about this inverse that's happening. This child is going to bring about justice and is going to put, you know, send the hungry, uh, send the full away hungry and, and fill the hungry with good things. And like this really deeply political, political story. What we lose, uh, well, was Jesus born of a virgin or not? That's the most important thing. No, no, no. If that's all you get out of the Christmas stories, you're missing the challenge of the Christmas stories. What happens when we, in the literalization, these are Jewish texts, when Gentiles became the dominant people of the church, we didn't understand how to read Jewish texts. We read them through Greco-Roman eyes. We read them through Greek philosophy, which is where I think we end up getting stuff like the Council of Nicaea, when they're arguing about Jesus or arguing about how many natures he has. What? I think if you were to go back in time and you were to sit down with the people who actually lived and ate and knew Jesus and said, how many natures did Jesus have? They would say, what in the world are you talking about? And so I think we ended up creating a mythos around Jesus that is an interpretation of the text, but something the text never actually was trying to do because we, didn't, we just didn't know how to read it. I'm sorry, and you're welcome. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. I'm hesitant to bring this up specifically because I know my audience, uh, where we're coming from. So I come from the Bethel world, supernatural, miracles, prophecy, signs, healings, all things. You look at the stories of Jesus, the miracles he performed, and you have a very different take on what the authors were after, what they were trying to communicate or point to, than what maybe evangelical Christianity takes, but especially Bethel. Um, Would you care to unpack some of that a little bit? It's indisputable that Jesus had a reputation as a healer. Scholars of all stripes will say Jesus was known to be a healer. I think the question for me is, um, what did that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be a healer? So these are the conversations for me that are just interesting to speculate about and to think about. As a general sort of worldview, I don't take those stories literally. Jesus raising the dead, especially somebody who's been dead for four days. I don't even think the point of that story was for us to actually take literally that Jesus raised a person from the dead. Right. So here's what's interesting about the story of Lazarus in John, John chapter 11. At the beginning of the story, we are told that Jesus is told the one you love is sick. Later in the story, we're told Jesus loved Lazarus. And then when Jesus comes to the tomb, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. Jesus comes to the tomb and weeps, and then he calls Lazarus out. And then the very next chapter, chapter 12, we're introduced to a brand new character in the gospel called the beloved disciple. Here's what I think is going on in that story particularly. The gospel of John was written, and this, is, this, was, this insight saved John for me. The Gospel of John, almost everybody, even conservative scholars, will say it was written probably in the 90s. Well, it's pretty something significant happened in the late 80s. In the late 80s, the Jewish Jesus followers and the Jewish synagogue parted ways. It seems like what probably happened is in the earliest, you know, the first 40, 50 years, 
the Jesus followers, the Jewish followers of Jesus kept going to synagogue, would engage in conversations, and maybe even would read a text from their scripture and reinterpret it around the life of Jesus. And maybe that's how we got the gospels even, right? As they're doing this in the synagogue. They get expelled. They get put out of the synagogue. There's even a story in there in John chapter 9 where people are afraid that if they align with Jesus, they'll get put out of the synagogue, which is a biographical detail of the community that produced the gospel. So John was written in the aftermath of a bad breakup. And John is trying to provide comfort, then also explain the journey they've been on. I think the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John, I think Lazarus is the beloved disciple. We're told again and again Jesus loved him. And then after he's raised, in the next chapter you have the beloved disciple. And what I think, I think Lazarus is symbolic of those who found life in Jesus. I think Lazarus represents the community that John was writing for. Are you saying you don't think Lazarus was a, a literal human? There may have been a human named Lazarus, but I'm saying in this, almost all the characters in this story have sort of a, um, no, I'm not going to use the word I want to use because people misunderstand the word, but a mythical quality. Okay. okay. Myth is not a bad thing. Myth doesn't mean not true, but they have this quality that you, they're characters in this story. Were there actual historical people? Yes, but in this story, they function differently in the narrative. And so I think what that story particularly is about, I think the writer is saying, we, our community, we have been raised to new life by Jesus. We can't go anywhere else, right? We can't go back. So that story's a little bit of a one-off. But there are other resurrection stories, right? The widow's son at Nain, um, the young girl who he raises back to life. I, you know, I don't take those stories literally. If you don't take them literally, how do you take these other resurrection stories? I believe Jesus healed people. But I believe, he did, I believe his healings were probably social, not physical. Uh, like the, the blind guy. You know, I, again, I think if we're in the level of metaphor, what does it mean to say that Jesus opened the eyes of people to see a new way? W one of my favorite examples is the woman who has the issue of bleeding, and she crawls through and she touches the hem of his garment. Do you know something Jesus does so much when he, he heals somebody is he makes a big to-do out of it. It's sort of like the record scratches, and he's like, everybody, 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 look over here, look over here. This person, healed. This daughter, healed. So you can embrace her, you can hug her, you can eat with her, you can include her. I think that's what made the Jesus community so radical. Is I think what, the way Jesus healed it was not just something that was happening to the body, because it was, the body wasn't the only issue. The issue was what these, what these ailments and predicaments led to socially, which was exclusion. Do I know for sure whether or not Jesus literally healed people? I don't. Nobody does. Would I be very happy if it were true? Yes. I'd be very happy if it were true. I'd be very happy if it happened all the time, everywhere, all around me. My focus is less on what literally happened because we just can't prove anything. It's all a matter of faith. So it's not that I'm out to destroy people's faith or destroy these stories. When people ask my opinion, I'll give it. But the most important thing is not whether they happened literally or didn't happen literally. The most important thing is the meaning. You know, let's say you could prove it one way or the other. Well, yeah, Jesus literally healed the blind person. Okay, great. High five. Think it's wonderful. What does it mean? What does it mean? Because in the Gospels, it seems to mean something. It's not just Jesus doing a thing. It's Jesus doing a thing and people going, who does he think he is? What does he think he's doing? Right? In the Gospel of John, he heals the blind man and it sets off this massive argument about who can really see. It's almost like the point of that story was Jesus saying, there are people who think they can see and they can't. And there are people who we think can't see, and they're actually seeing quite clearly, right? So there's all that sort of thing is happening. I think, I think the most radical thing Jesus did was embrace people nobody else would embrace and encourage the community to do the same. You see our friend over here with, with leprosy? He doesn't need to stand on the outside crying out unclean. He needs to sit at the table and be one of us.
beyond whatever happened historically and literally. That is somebody I want to follow. Somebody who's calling us beyond our barriers and boundaries, beyond our exclusion, calling us to make, not even to make room, but to realize the table's been way bigger. We've just been sitting at half of it, (laughs) pretending the rest of the table doesn't exist when, when there's plenty of room. Plenty of space. And so I think that's what Jesus is doing. Do I know what was literal and what was not literal? No. Very often in my preaching, I I just will say, okay, believe whatever you want. And I'd say that to you. Believe whatever you want about whether or not those things literally happened. What does it mean? The transformation that we're all hoping for, I think, is found in the meaning. It's found in asking the question, what do we do with it? That question, the meaning question, has been the one that has just pulled me into the Jesus story in new and exciting ways. How does this kind of approach read the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000? Or even like for that matter, Jesus walking on water. Like I'm just curious, how do you interpret those parts of the text? Okay, this is only going to take three or four or five more hours. Here's what's really fascinating to me. So the the story of the feeding of the 5,000, obviously there are echoes of Moses in that story of the manna in the wilderness. Jesus sets the people down in the 5,000, sets them down in groups, and somebody shares a lunch. And that one person shares a lunch, and everybody gets to eat. I gave that sermon, a sermon on this text at the church in Kentucky, and toward the end of my time there, what I would do is I would do like a 20-minute sermon, and then I would open it up for conversation. And at one time, I did my little intro to the sermon, and then I opened up for conversation, and we were talking about the 12 basketfuls picked over, picked up, which represent the tribes of Israel, and, and a woman in the, uh, in the church raised her hand, and she said, you know, somebody, I read something somewhere that uh, mentioned that in that day, it was really common for people to pa- pack a basket lunch with them when they would be going on a journey like this. And so obviously the crowds that were following Jesus didn't have the resources to do that. But the disciples apparently did because they had 12 baskets w- with which they picked up the rest of the food. She's like, it's interesting that they didn't open up their baskets, but it was somebody else who did. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? And it just led me on a whole other realm of discussion. I actually said to her, would you like to come up and finish this because what you're saying is better than what I'm saying. (laughs) So I think there is a a Moses echo there, right? But I also think it is if everybody were to share what little bit they had, everybody could eat. Imagine if those, those who had a basket opened it up. If we organize ourselves and we sit down in groups. So I think there's a real practical. I think that's what Jesus ministry was doing. I mean, Jesus didn't just have a last supper. He had supper all the way in between. And his meals were this radical announcement and enactment of the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Everybody sharing, everybody having enough. This is what the kingdom is. It's God's justice. It's the very things that are written about in the law, about taking care of one another, about making sure that nobody goes hungry. Jesus is doing that. And so I think that miracle is partly saying, this is, what, this is how Jesus taught us to live and do and engage. I think it has other meanings. I think it also has meanings about Jesus reconstituting Israel and all those sorts of things. But I think there's a real practical. But the feeding of the 4,000 is really fascinating, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew does something really cool. So Mark tells the story, uh, and, and right before that story in Mark, he tells the story of Jesus meeting uh, in Gentile territory a Syrophoenician woman who had a daughter who needed healing. And it's where Jesus has this really uncomfortable conversation where, where he says to her, you know, it's not right to throw the children's bread to the dogs, which is not a nice thing to say. Um, and this woman comes back and responds, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the ta- under the table. And Jesus is so overwhelmed by her faith that he changes his mind. It's, I, when I preach on this, I say he, Jesus learned something new and changed his mind. He's confronted with an other that he's been raised in, with a perspective on, and he's so moved by her faith 
but he changes his mind and he heals her daughter. Now, when Ma- and then he goes on to feed the 4,000. Now, when Matthew does it, Matthew changes where the woman's from. She's not, from, she's not Syrophoenician, she's Canaanite. There's a problem. Hadn't been Canaanites for a very long time, by the time Jesus was around. But it's a Canaanite woman, and he heals her daughter, and he goes on, and Jesus feeds the 4,000, and they pick up seven basketfuls. Plagued me forever. Why seven basketfuls? In Deuteronomy, there are seven nations listed, Canaanite nations, which were supposed to be exterminated by Joshua in the conquest. And here we have Jesus, whose name in Hebrew is Joshua. And instead of exterminating these people, this Jesus, this Joshua, is feeding them when they're hungry. It is a retelling of the conquest narrative to not be conquest. We learn in Jesus that actually conquest is not the goal. The goal is compassion. And that story, and I think that's why Matthew changes the detail. Because he, he's like, when, when I read this in Mark, this could have gone over somebody's head. I want to make sure we get it loud and clear. That in Jesus, we're retelling the Moses story. We're retelling the story of the people. And this Jesus, instead of killing our enemies, has compassion for them. To me, that changed the entire understanding of what's going on in that story. <laughs> You're saying Jesus didn't supernaturally turn five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed all those people. This was allegory. There's a more practical side to this, and the point was not miraculous feeding. It was something else. I mean, I would use the language of parable, but, okay, I, I'll also, but I will say this. It doesn't matter. If all Jesus did was feed some people, that'd be great, but we would be missing the meaning of the story. What I love is that John's telling of that story, the feeding of 5,000, where the disciples are like, where are, we gonna get, where are they going to get food? He's like, you feed them. It's almost like John wants to make sure we understand. Like Jesus intended for us to actually do this. Jesus wants us to feed the 5,000. And he wants us to do it by having these radically inclusive meals where everybody gets something. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is correcting that abuse at Corinth, what's his problem? The wealthy among you are coming early and eating and getting drunk. And then the poor, those who are working or those who maybe are actually enslaved and they're getting a brief break from their torture to come and be a part of this, they come and there's nothing to eat. And you're humiliating them. And he actually says to them, you have homes to eat and get drunk in. The point of this is not for you to eat and drink. The point of this is for us to eat and drink. The point of this is for us to share a radically inclusive meal where the rich and the poor the enslaved and the free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, eat the same bread and drink the same drink and celebrate this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And I think that goes all the way back to Jesus. And I think that whether or not those stories happened literally, I think if we don't get down to the meaning, we could just say Jesus can do really neat stuff. And then we can go out into the world and not act a thing like him. Okay, this concludes part two of my interview with Josh. Very excited for you guys to check out part three. Again, I just want to remind you, if you have interest in getting deeper into the deconstruction conversation, I have a couple of options I'd love to share with you for you to get further down that road. One, you can check out Numa Plus. I'll provide a link below for you to do that. I do a deconstruction series, just kind of getting into the perspective, the, the reason behind this, and some of the different things that you want to look at when it comes to deconstructing what it is that Christianity has even become at this point and what we as moral, ethical people need to do with where we are and where we need to go. And then I also wanna let you know about a probably more involved space. Um, this is a mentorship group that I personally run called Ashes. We meet every week. Um, this is a group of people who are deconstructing together. We're pulling things apart. We're sharing and confessing our experiences in our upbringing in Christianity. And what does that mean for us now? What do we see in scripture now? What do we hear from the Holy Spirit now? What do we believe it means to most faithfully follow Jesus and demonstrate who God is in the world today, correcting some of the error that we were indoctrinated with 
in the early stages of our Christianity. If you're interested in either of those things, you can check out the links below as well, Josh Scott. You can find him in lots of places. I provided some links below for you to see those as well. Thanks for watching. See you at the next episode. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.